let's start a little bit different than we normally do when we come together for worship, and particularly this time of our worship. We're going to start a new series starting this week called The Torah. I want you to know there's a few things about these first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, the Law of Moses. One of the things is this. We live in a generation that declares that it is no longer needed. Now, I want you to know something about this. That is a lie. We need all of the Bible. And as we go through this series, I want you to see Jesus in these first five books of the Bible. What's more is I want you to know why you should read it. Because sometimes, frankly, we don't even know where to start in the Bible. And like any great book we read, you always start at the beginning. So if you'll do this with me, let's take a deep look into the book of Genesis. Take a look at the screen with me. In the beginning, Jesus created the heavens and the earth. By him, through him, and to him, in the beginning, all things emerged. In the beginning, he built the physical world into which he would eventually come. In the beginning, he formed the flesh he would eventually become. He designed the air in the beginning on which his lungs would eventually rely. In the beginning, he constructed the tree on which he would hang and eventually die. For when God spoke and the universe sprung to life, in the beginning, he made a promise to save the world by becoming Jesus the Christ. And we know this because it is right in the beginning of our Bibles, in the first story we face. For the book of Genesis demonstrates how God can take all the evil we create and make something good. And he does so not because he has to or even because he should, but because he made a gracious promise that he would. In the beginning, we see the meaning of why God created the earth and everything in it. It's that we might enjoy his presence, expand his garden, and cover the world as his image. So to that end, God gave human beings the privilege of being a part of that mission. He enlisted Adam and Eve to care for the earth and to have children to be fruitful and multiply until everyone that would come from their family line turned the whole earth into a garden temple where humans could live side by side with the divine. But for Adam and Eve, something else came to mind. Instead of enjoying God and his provision, they sought out a counterfeit. Instead of expanding the garden, they sought to conquer it. Instead of spreading the image of God, they sought out their own prominence, 
God gave them the reason for their existence, and they did the exact opposite. All they were left with was shame, where they used to be free, guilt, where there used to be peace, and fear, where there used to be ease. So instead of being with God in his garden temple, they would be removed from him. For they sought out life apart from the one who gave them breath. They thought they were gaining something by their deeds, but all they earned was death. Death for their bodies, loss of their purpose, the end of their paradise, the destruction of their innocence. But the worst part of all of it, the punishment's deepest depth, is that they would be cut off from the author of life. That is the worst possible death. But God's plan was not altered or disrupted. His purposes were not laid to rest. Instead, he would work through the worst humans could do to show us his best. For what we see after Adam and Eve commit the first sin at the garden tree is that God makes them a guarantee that he would set humanity free from the curse of death that would divide us from Adam and Eve's offspring he would provide us with a new seed, a new Adam, one who was righteous, who would unmake death, remake his world, and reconcile us. Genesis demonstrates how God can take all the evil we create and make something good. And he does so not because he has to, or even because he should, but because he made a gracious promise that he would. This promise of a new seed was made to a specific people of a specific line, which Genesis goes to great lengths to trace and define. But in Eve's first seed, we do not find life, but death. We don't see a son crushing sin, but dying under it. So even though Eve had given birth to new offspring, God's promise of his final seed would not be fulfilled yet. Instead, God would give them another son named Seth, who would be the next in line to bear the promise. But just like Adam and Eve, and just like Cain and Abel, God's promised seed would be carried by imperfect people, people who continually commit evil. Noah escaped the flood, but committed shameful acts while intoxicated. Sarah was promised a chosen child, but gave Abraham to another when her doubts were escalated. Isaac was told to bless his younger son, but tried to make it so the older was the one consecrated. Jacob was given God's blessing, but constantly tricked, lied, and manipulated. And by the time we get to Joseph, at the end of Genesis, 
Adam and Eve's family tree is filled with so much brokenness, so much death, so much hopelessness that we start to wonder if anyone will fulfill God's promises, if anyone will be the promised seed, or if there would ever be someone who could. But Genesis demonstrates how God can take all the evil we create and make something good. And he does so not because he has to, or even because he should, but because he made a gracious promise that he would. Which is why the book of Genesis points to a future descendant. One who would keep the promise. One who would take all that was wrong and make it right. For the very word who in the beginning spoke and there was light was born as the promised seed of Genesis as Jesus the Christ. He would bring the whole world life, but not like Adam and Eve who tried to earn life by taking something off a tree. Instead, he would put his own life on one to take the death that humanity brought on. For in the beginning, when Jesus built the world, formed the flesh, and constructed the very idea of trees, he was crafting the very piece of wood on which he would suffer loss. In the beginning, Jesus promised to conquer death by putting himself on a cross. But what's different about his death than the death earned in the Garden of Eden is that when Jesus died, death could not keep him. Since he did not sin like Adam, the grave had no claim and therefore had to release him. So now all nations can escape the curse, beat death, and be back with God in Eden. So just as in Genesis, the cross of Jesus demonstrates how God can take all the evil we create and make something good. And he does so not because he has to, or even because he should, but because... He made a gracious promise that he would. So I don't know when the last time was that you opened the book of Genesis and saw it speak to you. I mean really speak to you, not just kind of reading through. So I want to start with a few key things that are not in your notes. Number one, the events of Genesis are real. Real people, real timetables, real outcomes. Nothing in Genesis is a fable. Nothing in Genesis is a farce. Everything written in Genesis is because of God's goodness and his grace. You may be saying, well, Kyle, I don't see God's grace at all points. Uh, Because maybe you're like me. You saw in Genesis where God says that he regretted making humans. 
and that he had it in his mind to wipe the earth clean of them. It says, however, there was one man in his family. That was Noah. God was gracious even though we know that God knew Noah's outcomes. We knew that God knew Noah's heart. And that if Jesus is true, there is none who seek God. No, not one. You see, even at the core of our heroes of Genesis, they were all men and women broken and who needed saving. Not one of them had a completely clean slate. None of them could be the promised Messiah. None of them could save the people. Yes, we see many times that our heroes in Genesis took the stage at the right time with the right hearts, but they couldn't stay that way. Genesis is a reminder to us that on our best day, we need Jesus. That's why we need Genesis. So let's spend some time looking at Genesis together. Genesis 1-1 tells us this, in the what? Beginning. That's why Genesis is called Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's an amazing start to a book, if you will. I mean, it's something like it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. I mean, it's, it's grandiose in its thought pattern. In the beginning, God created. It's a big statement. It is a foundational statement of those who believe that the Bible is truth. Do we believe that God is creator? It's foundational because if you don't believe God is creator, you cannot believe John 3.16. We have to understand that God is the author and the pen work of creation. So let's look a little bit deeper and leave your finger there in Genesis, but join me in John chapter 1. Starts the same way. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning. Verse 3 says this, All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness has or didn't overcome it. I just want you just to imagine for a minute with me, darkness nothingness, quiet, and a God who is completely self-sustainable. He needs nothing. His creation already speaks to him. The angels are already declaring his holiness, and they see him for who he is, holy and powerful and all-encompassing. He goes, I want to create and so he does so. And thus begins the Bible. You know, we're not given a whole lot before Genesis. We don't get the time that God was just there. However, we do get this, that God the Father, God the Son, according to John chapter 1, and the Holy Spirit are all there. How do we know this? Well, we get that the Holy Spirit hovers upon the face of the earth. We get that Jesus was there from John. So we know that God in his triune nature, the God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are there. And they're complete. 
They lack nothing. And in that moment, God goes, as a creator, I have to create. And so he makes a planet and the stars and the moon and animals. And then he creates this creature that he knows the very moment he creates it, it will turn on him. When he crafts Adam, he knows Adam's going to fall. When he creates Eve, he knows that she's broken as well. Even though we know from the get-go that God created them good. Genesis means origins in the Greek or beginnings. It's the start. It's how we know that God started things for us. And I want you to capture this, that Genesis is not the beginning, but it's rather our beginning. It's our beginning. Because God existed. It's, it's not his start. It's ours. It's a point in the map that we can say, at this point, God created what we see. And he did so with absolute pleasure and goodness. Nothing that God creates, he creates ungood. He creates it good and he declares it. It's good. And he, he gives it this goodness because he created it to exist in the way he created it from the beginning. But one of his creatures has a choice of goodness. God gives Adam and Eve this tree. He gives them lots of trees. He gives them ultimate authority over the planet. And he says, this one tree I want you to know is the knowledge of what? Good and evil. Here's the thing about that tree. What do they know except for good? Nothing. They walk with God. They spend time with good exemplified. They see good all around them. When I see a snake around our building or at my house, I know that it's not good. Adam and Eve, everything was good. That tree of the knowledge of evil was the knowledge of death. You see, they had never seen it. They never tasted death. And yet in this moment, in this one felt moment, things changed. God created man and woman to subdue the world, to populate it, and to stay in connection with him. It's the exact same thing that God calls us to do, but it's changed. What is it that this world has that you and I shouldn't subdue by the power of Christ? Also, we're still called to populate it. Be fruitful and multiply is what he tells Adam and Eve. And then it's to stay in connection with him. He walked with them. I, I just want you to capture this. What would it look like to walk our planet with God? To converse, to ask questions. That's where Adam and Eve got to be. And see, this one moment of choice changes it. God gave Adam and Eve the choice. 
of the knowledge of death. They chose it. And so, so would we. I've often heard people say, you know, this is all because of Adam and Eve. If they hadn't done that, we would be great. No, we would have done it. We'd have eaten from that tree. Here's why. We all want to be God. This was the choice they were making. Don't mistake it. They weren't choosing to eat from a tree they shouldn't. When that back and forth with the enemy comes, where the enemy tells Eve, did he really say not to eat from this? You know, if you eat from it, you're going to be like him. And the choice they made was they wanted to not be with God. They wanted to be God. The only trouble is this. There's only one God. And we're not him. The problem is we choose sin because we think we are him. That we can simply do what we so choose and there are no repercussions. The other issue is this. You and I will never choose life instinctively. We have to have some intercede for us to point us, to direct us towards life. And in this moment of the tree, they should have retreated back to God and said, there's this creature that's telling us we should eat from this tree. But we know that you said not to. Adam should have thrown up his hands and said, whoa, uh uh-uh. Whatever you are needs to get out of here. Because we were told by God who walks with us to not eat from that tree, and we're not going to do it. But he didn't. Neither did any man or woman from then on. We all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all eaten from that tree in our life. We've all had that moment where in our walk with God, we have chosen sin over him. And in that, we've also faced the consequences of death. We all will taste it. Because we've all tasted of the fruit. And what's more is this, we also act like Adam and Eve did, blaming everybody else from our sin except for ourselves. Remember what happens? God says, where are y'all? He said, we're hiding in the garden because we know that we're naked. God said, who told you that? You see, the perfection that God created, they ruined like that. So God kills an animal. It's the first time we've seen an animal sacrificed for man. He makes them clothing. And they walk in the garden for a moment. But you know what happens next? Adam says, the woman that you gave me, she's the reason for all this. The woman says, whoa, 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 whoa. The serpent is the one to blame for this. What they're really saying is, God, you created the tree. You're the one to blame for this. Because we get you shouldn't have made the tree. Have you ever thought about that? Maybe if you're a study of Genesis, you've done this with me. Why would God create a tree that could kill? Because he was creating another tree. From the beginning of time, God had a plan for humans, and it was not to stay in the garden. So we believe, we believe that God created us to stay in the garden forever. That's simply not true. You see, that tree was there because another tree was growing that would take the life of his son so that sins would be covered 
for everyone. And he came at the right time. Between these two points, we're going to get a lot of law. In fact, the first five books of the Bible we get are called the laws of Moses. We get this because he is a pen work of most of these books, if not all. But what we do learn is this. Through all of it, none of us could line up with the law. And maybe you feel like you've tried to be judged by that. You've come to church a million times and you've made mistakes and you feel like everybody's pointing fingers at you. And I can tell you this, they are. Welcome to church. Here's why they point. Because they don't want to have to deal with their own sins. Heard it a long time ago when people point at you. They always have three fingers pointing back at them. That's what happened in the garden with Adam and Eve. And that's what happens today. All Adam and Eve's actions were preordained in Jesus for redemption. The moment God makes Adam in his image, he's making an image for Jesus to come in. He said, Listen, Jesus, I'm going to make somebody, and you're going to die for them one day. And if Scripture is truth, he does so willingly for us. Scripture says it pleased God to crush Christ on our behalf. And while you may go, whoa, wait a second. That doesn't seem like a gracious God at all. I'm so grateful he did it for me. I'm so grateful I had a way in the midst of all of my sin, in the midst of all of my failures, to have someone who could fill the gap for me. But I want you to see it with me. Turn to Genesis 3. Genesis 3, because this is going to be something you need to see. A prophecy about Jesus is found in Genesis 3, 14 through 15. It says this, So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you're cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal, and you'll move on your belly and eat the dust all the days of your life. And I'll put hostility between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. This is a messianic prophecy in Genesis, that one day... This serpent would come and strike the heel of Eve's offspring, but he would crush his head. The day that Jesus hangs on the cross, they hang him by his hands and his feet. And what the enemy thought would be the death blow of the Son of God became his greatest victory. When he thought he struck the heel of the greatest, Jesus smashed his head. I was reading and came across a quote by Lee Strobel that says this. It's encouraging to know that even before we existed, God knew the predicament Satan and our sinful desires would lead us into. And he already made a plan for our deliverance and salvation. At creation, long before the planet was formed, a plan was formed. Jesus would come. And he would take on our flesh and be amongst us and would not sin. He would take the sins of man and he would die for those. He would face the consequences of death. And he would die. And see, if that was the end of the story, it would be 
unremarkable at most. I mean, the fact that a man could go through life without sin is powerful. But if at the end of his life he dies, it's just normal. If we were hung on a cross, we would die. And they put him in a borrowed tomb, and they seal it shut. They put guards in front. And then the darkness happened again. Quiet. Nothingness. His followers would run and hide. They would question. They would doubt. I mean, let's not forget the men that walked with Jesus doubted. And yet they saw him do amazing things, feed the multitudes, heal the sick and lame. I mean, they saw all this, and yet when he died, they had never really seen other than Lazarus anybody come out from the dead. Certainly not anybody just will themselves out. So on the third day, the women carrying spices to go and tomb Jesus' body showed up. But he wasn't there. The disciples run and they check on it. And even then they question. And they run back because they're marveled. What if it was real? What if he really meant what he said? And what remains behind is a woman weeping. She sees what she thinks is the gardener. Says, sir, if you've taken his body, don't ever forget this woman walked with Jesus as well. Heard what he said. Couldn't believe it. If you've taken his body, just tell us where you took it. We'll put it back. Because in her mind, Jesus was dead. But this isn't any ordinary gardener. You see, this gardener made the plants. This gardener knew each plant and how it was built. He could hear the praise of the plants. And he says, Mary. <laughs> At this, she realizes that this is not a gardener, but a carpenter. She realizes it's not just a carpenter, it's a savior. She realizes it's just not a savior, it's Jesus himself. And she goes, what? All she wants to do is hug this man up. It's mesmerizing that Jesus is who he says he was. And he says, go and tell the others, I will meet them soon. You see, from the very beginning, God created that moment. From the very foundation of the stars, he knew that Jesus would rise for us. I got to tell you something. The reason that tree was there is we would have found a way to sin on our own. We would have killed, we would have stolen, we'd have done whatever it took, and Jesus himself was promised. Why was the tree there? Because God knew who we really are. He knew that we could not be holy on our own. We're too strong for that. He created us strong. We're too creative for that. He made us creative. We're too broken for that. He created us for completion in him. And when the garden changed everything, it started a time clock for Jesus. Why was the tree there? Because without it, Jesus' plan couldn't be made. Adam and Eve, they sinned. We know so according to Scripture, they turned their eyes off of God and put it upon themselves. But it's the same sin that we deal with today. 
It's the same thing that we struggle with today. So why should we read Genesis? Why spend the time to read it? So you should read Genesis to know the following. The true origin and creation of everything. The true origin and creation of everything. Why should we read Genesis? Because you need to know where you came from. Right now we live in a generation where people swab the inside of their mouth and put it in a tube and send it off and they get back a report telling them where they came from. And maybe you haven't done it. My family's done it. It's amazing where we came from. But you should know where you come from. The next, how real people struggled in their faith and how others triumphed. You're going to have times in your life where you feel like a failure. You're going to have times in your life where you can't get it right and you feel like it's just a revolving door of brokenness. How is it that some people fail when others triumph? And I can tell you the answer to that. It's only when they connect with God. It's the only time they triumph is when God is in control. Anytime he's not, they fail. Look at Genesis. Spend time in it and prove me wrong. When people connect with God, he lets their lives triumph. When they take their eyes off of him, they fail. They fail. It's no other way to do it. We've got to hold on to the Lord. If you need to know this, maybe you're a New Testament person. The New Testament mentions Genesis 103 times. Why should we know Genesis? Because if you're a New Testament believer like we all are in Christ, he sources Genesis. Jesus talks about it. It's sourced 103 times alone. It's amazing. The next and probably the best because Jesus was there. Jesus was there. In Genesis, Jesus is there. If we want to know who Jesus is, we got to see where he went. I, I've discovered something about me I didn't know was true. Lately, I've fallen in love with reading history books. I love reading about people of history and uh, their childhood, what made them who they are, the decisions they made. I love reading these things. They, they speak to me. I love reading about how people would come up with ideas and how they would have to work so hard to get that idea to, to blossom. I love that about history. I love the times that they succeeded and how they failed because how many times have we failed in our path? The reason we need to read Genesis is this. Even the people that we hear of throughout the rest of Scripture failed at some point. They were flawed. They weren't perfect, even though we'd like to give them that status. Like say, well, I'll never be an Abraham. You know what happened to Abraham? He died. It's awful. You know why he died? Sin. Isaac. You know what happened to Isaac? He died. Jacob. Anybody remember Jacob? Everybody remember what happened to Jacob? He He died. You know why? Sin. Sin. And this is why we need to know their stories, because it's ours. The most powerful thing I think a Christian can do is this. Have a Bible they spend time with. I, I'm a bookie person, I promise you. I'm not a bookie. I, I like books. Um, <laughs> thought I'd clarify that real quick. Um, I like the feel of paper. 
And I like to go back into my Bible and find things. At my house right now is the Bible of Jess Sizemore. I'm getting to spend time with it before his funeral on Wednesday. As I've been reading through it and seeing what he marked, I can see things that, that God spoke to Jess about. He not only would highlight it, he would take a piece of paper and he would write that on a piece of paper and stick it in his Bible. So when he was going through something, he would open up his Bible and start flipping and find that piece of paper and go, ah, oh, there's that scripture. It's amazing to get to walk through someone's Bible. Dell and I talk about it a lot. It's probably one of our favorite things. What y'all don't know is this. Some time ago, probably about a year and a half ago, Jess came to church with a different Bible. And he said, Brother Kyle, I want you to spend some time with this Bible. It was my dad's. His dad was a pastor in our, our community for over 40 years. Uh, years before that as well in other parts of the country. His foundational, his tree of ministry reaches not only over our city but beyond. So I got to look through his dad's Bible and as I was turning through I could see notes on the side. Some you could really read, some were so thick you couldn't even tell. But it was powerful for me to get to spend time and, and to read where his dad would say, I'm going to preach this one day and here's a, another note next to it. And you turn to that Bible verse and there would be another one written to it and you turn to that one. I spent one day reading through a progressive Bible plan of his preaching that would have been probably 18 weeks of preaching. It's powerful. And now to get to hold Jess's Bible in my hands is powerful because Jess was my friend. And I loved him. And today he's getting to celebrate with my Jesus. And that makes me happy for him. It makes me sad for me, but happy for Jess. We need a Bible and we need to know Genesis because it tells a story that you should be living. It tells a story of a Jesus who would die for you and make a plan for you even when we had it all together at the beginning. If it's true, if Scripture is true, if the Bible is true, we need to know it because it shapes how we live. It teaches us how to follow after God, and it shows us how people connected with him. And I want to be connected to him. So should you read Genesis? Yes. And you should read it with a name in your mind, Jesus. He will save our souls, even when we choose a tree. Let me pray for you. Father God, I pray that you would speak over our lives today. God, you'd move in our hearts, and God, that my friends in this room would know that you made a plan for them long before the mountains were formed, before birds could fly, before fish could swim, before stars could reflect the sun, and Lord, long before the sun was in motion, you had a plan for us. Lord, Scripture tells us that you knew us by name, that you crafted us in our mother's womb, that you knit us together. Lord, not only do you know us, you made us. And you keep making us, even though we're broken, even though we're going to choose sin. You keep making us because you know how good Jesus is. He's valuable. And because of his value, Lord, you want him to be glorified with our lives. So Lord, help us to see Genesis as a piece to the puzzle of knowing you. And let us never put a part of our Bible away. Because you're in it. 
And Lord, where you are, we want to be. Lord, we need you. Lord, Scripture says that we have sinned and fallen short of the mark that God had for us to live in. It's called His glory. Because of that, you made a way by Jesus, your only begotten Son, that whoever would believe in you would not simply die, but they would have eternal life in you. So God, I pray that there's people, Lord, that you've been speaking to that came today and want to give their lives to you. Lord, they wouldn't waste their time, but God, that they would make you known. God, thank you for what you're going to do in their lives today. Lord, move in this time in a way that we would marvel at, God. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.